Welcome. Good, good evening, Larry. Thank well, you. So we're going to, I'm going to sit down and give you the, the, the camera, the mic, and I'll come back up at 7.30 and we'll close up the service. How's that? Well, that sounds good. I just wanted to say how grateful I am to be with you and to be walking this path with you. It's, it's a extremely a, a blessing, a huge blessing. I wanted to, um, I want to make a comment here on the basis of what, what Steve is saying. And uh, this is just my belief about Steve and about you who are walking with him and what you're being called into. And I, I don't even hardly have the words for it because I believe that you're being called into the reality of the spiritual realm that is not based off of uh, wispy, gauzy. It's not based off of human flesh trying to produce anything. It's, it has as, as its fundamental place waiting on the Lord, but waiting in his presence, not waiting out here, but learning how to go before him through a glass darkly, but still go before him. And, uh, and so that's just absolutely wonderful. But I want to share with you an experience that I got to have on last Friday. Uh, and I hope this will be as much encouragement to you as it is to me. And just awe at God and what he can do. I met with a man who I discipled in the 70s. And we spent some, uh, some quality years together in the 70s. And then he went on with his life, his way, and I went on with my life, my way. But uh, he came to out in California, and he got a doctor's degree with um, Peter Wagner in that school. And But we had covered Jesus as a high priest of our confession. That was part of what I'd been able to share. And meditating on the word of God. That, in, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts are two different forms of communication. And in the Hebrew, we're not to meditation until we begin to see, see with the eyes of the heart. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to let us see so that the words become words that produce images because they all came from God's heart. And when they came from God's heart, they were the images of his heart when he spoke. That's the reason that Jesus says that the, it's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What, what's your heart really saying is going to come out of your mouth, okay? Well, that's, that's truer of God than anybody in the universe. So let me tell you about what has happened with uh, Dwight. For 10 years, when he got up in the night to go to the bathroom, before he would go back to bed, he would spend time on writing down some particular card of what the, he felt like the Lord wanted him to be meditating on. And he built those up over a period of time, but he was not getting so many because you can't meditate on a hundred scriptures because you'll be, you'll still be doing them with your soul over and over and over and over. But, but the deeper meditation means that what the Lord is leading you to becomes the focus until he takes you somewhere else. So he told me about this going on, but this is what he prayed before the Lord. He said, Lord, before I leave, I want you, if you would, to bring me to the place that you can accomplish the most with my life that you would like to accomplish. And he said, I did that meditation listen to me carefully, for 10 years before anything started happening. But in the last 10 years, because of what he is facilitating, the Holy Spirit's doing the work. But in the last 10 years, 12 years, 1,200,000 Muslims have been baptized in the name of Jesus. In the last five years, he moved, taking the same model into India. And in five years, there's 200,000 Hindus that have been baptized in the name of Jesus. 
the Holy Spirit dropped in on him a paradigm. And the paradigm was five, five, five. He didn't write a book on it. He didn't lecture on it. He shared in one meeting with about 100 men that were in the meeting with him, 555. And he said, this is what it's about. Five men get together and they go get five others. And now you've got a nucleus of a unit. And then you commit five years of your life to walk in meditation through the scripture and doing 555 and teaching everybody else to do the same. He said, now Larry can't do this in the United States because there's no Western Christians that will commit to anything for any lengthy period of time. To say five years and you're gonna meditate in the word and go a certain path, well, I, I believe that uh, we're, we're into that path. I believe that Steve is into that path in his heart in a major way. And I think that uh, we've got to uh, water and sow together. And I, and I think it's growing. Um, but the end result is, and Steve and I think are both in agreement with this, that the book of Hebrews is a book uniquely designed by the Holy Spirit to be the focus of the end of the age and be the place that the greatest release that has ever been takes place. So let me pray because I wanted to say, but can you, can you imagine that? I sat across from him and said, Dwight, and he said, Larry, it's not me. I promise you, it's the Holy Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing. Can you imagine a million two hundred thousand Muslims that are now believers in Jesus? What kind of multiplication can they bring? And so we never know. You don't know what your potential is in the Lord. Only He knows what your potential is, because He knows what's ahead for you if you will be available, and if I will be available, and Steve will be available. Where we're coming after Jesus. We're coming after the person of Jesus. We're not coming after information about Jesus. We're coming after Jesus. So let me pray, and I'll share some thoughts here with everybody. So, Father, we're acknowledging that you are the God and the Father of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Adonai the one saved, the one healed, the one delivered, who you anointed as high priest king, and he's the Lord from which you created the heavens and the earth. And so we really want to soar in the spirit. We want to feed and to receive. We want to be so taught by the spirit that we come to experience the truths that we talk about. And we ask it in Jesus' name, and we ask it for Jesus' glory. Amen. Um, I want to give you, as, as we start, I want to give you um, just two or three places that are, that are so huge to me. Uh, remember the first time I was ever out there, I said to you, and it's still true, you're free to disagree with everything I say. And if you know that you're free to disagree, then you don't have to disagree fast because you can stay open and see if what I'm saying is so. Now, here's my commitment to you. In fact, let me do it another way because I said this is a great word that came from Steve the second time that I ever uh, was engaged with Steve and we were talking. Uh, Janet introduced us to Thea and... Uh, and we had talked about rediscovery of the heart. So let me start with that. The rediscovery of the heart is a recognition that the language of the heart's image is not words. And that if we don't recognize that, this left brain ox that's in us, this soulish aspect of us, come to scripture. And we're trying to deal everything with our intellect instead of the total dependency on the spirit of God to grant revelation. Whatever is not revelation, it's not life. It can be preparation 
but boy, it's not the life. The spirit gives life. The letter kills. I can go off on that. I have people fight that up down. I just said, look, all I'm saying is what the scripture says. And so I want to give you just a couple of things that are a great starting point for me. And I'd ask you to pray about it being a starting point for you. One is there's a major revelation that has come. We could not be doing what we're doing right now if it hadn't been for a man named Mandelbrot who made the great discovery of the fractal nature of geometry, which was then the discovery that every single thing in creation is operating on the basis of its core fractal formula that was put in place at its smallest formula and then it just starts multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and i love saying it this way you are the best example of a fractal that is in creation and what does that mean that means you used to be one cell and everything that you see in me that's holy and righteous and good that's not an invader from the outside was inside that one cell, everything. And nothing new has come in, nothing new. The nutrition has come in, but the nutrition is doing nothing but abetting the multiplication that takes place. So I used to be one cell, one cell, and Diana used to be one cell, and Steve and Cammy, everybody used to be one cell. And then you became two, and then you became four. And then you became eight, and then you became 16. And that doubling action just goes, but what is being doubled is every single cell is like the mother cell that it came out of. Now, that has changed my whole way of understanding and studying scripture, because here's what it means. And I would ask you to just pray about this, this ponder. It means this. It means if the whole world operates on fractal formula, then it's for sure the word of God does. And the word of God is what the Holy Spirit sows. And the first time the Holy Spirit sows a word, that word being sown, the root of that word is the root of the word. And all the growth that starts to come out, the doubling action comes out that produces branches and produces fruit, all that wonderful thing, are all life because they stay connected to the root. And a huge problem in understanding scripture and not having the big picture, which God wants us to be people who understand the big picture. We're going to try to talk about that some. But every single thing means this, that if a branch gets disconnected from the root, it can't possibly produce the fruit that God intends. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can't do anything apart from me. Well, branch. Well, that's another way of saying, here's a root, and there's growth that comes off of it, and out of that root comes branches. Those branches are a different expression of what was inside that first seed. But in order for it to be life and to be what God intended it must stay connected to the root and we never come to view a branch and we do it all the time I've done it all my life I've seen a branch and say oh I got this I got this I got... and all I'm doing is looking at a branch independently of other branches and I may be debating another branch that if I just said wait a minute uh if I get into the root these are different expressions of life that were both inside the first seed. I could say more, but that probably is enough for right now. I want to give you another thing that I would encourage you with as deeply as I know, to pray this kind of prayer before the Lord. May I never ignore your word. May I never minimize your word. May I never reinterpret your word. Or may I never declare your word, your word fulfilled in any way other than the vision that was in your heart and is exactly the way that you're going to fulfill it. Don't let me get ahead of you by saying, well, this has been done and this has been done and this has been done. When the father said, I don't know where you got that, but you didn't get it from me. And so what our tendency will be is we'll ignore words. Which words do we ignore? The ones we don't like. 
That's the first the ones we don't like. We'll ignore words that disagree with our theological position. Uh, we'll minimize words. We'll say, well, yeah, I, that's something, but it's really not important. And if, we, if we're tenacious enough about our theology, I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about our theology. If we're tenacious enough about it, we will reinterpret the word of God and cause it to say what we want it to say because we don't want it to impact what we believe that's not true. So a wonderful prayer to pray if you're secure in Jesus is teach me what I believe it's not true because there's a spirit of truth and the spirit of truth never says anything that's false. And there's a spirit of truth and a spirit of error. And the purpose of the spirit of error always is to block the body of believers from experiencing the truth. I hope everybody gets that. that that's just really fundamentally simple to me. Now, I want to tell you about um, what happened with me and Steve because he said something and I thought, boy, that is so wonderful. I hope I never forget it. Um, I told him about rediscovering the heart, and he asked me this question. He said, since you started viewing scripture as a movie to be seen, since you started saying, okay, these are images to be seen, what would you say is the greatest revelation that you've seen or that you've been taught? And I said, Jesus on the cross is not the Savior. The high priest is the savior. Now, you know what Steve said to me immediately? I want you to write it down. If you're writing down, he's your, he's your leader. Write down what he asked because it's profound. He said, where does it say that? I think I, when I was converted, born again up on the mountainside over my mother's grave, I came off the mountain and said to the Lord, I'll never again allow any man to tell me what scripture says. I spent 26 years letting people tell me what scripture said, and it meant nothing to me. I could quote it, I could make A's in Bible class, but it had nothing to do with my life. I'll never again allow any man to tell me what scripture says. I'll allow them to tell me what they believe it says. I'll listen. But I'm going to do, I didn't have the exact words, but I'm going to say, where does it say that? So let me go study the scripture, because this is what, if, if you're going to grow like you're in this house to be a person's grow, I don't believe anybody's a part of what's there is not being called into something way beyond what you've ever experienced, because I believe that's the desire that's in Steve's heart just to experience Jesus, just to experience Jesus. And that means we have to go places we've never gone. That means we have to see Jesus like we've never seen him. Uh, that's just so absolutely wonderful. But in that context, we have to be Bereans, which is, where does it say that? So you give me the scripture that says what you said it says, and let me go ponder it, meditate. The Holy Spirit, what? What's the scripture say? We don't need to have a done teacher. The Spirit will teach us. Well, it doesn't mean that there's not teachers. I'm a teacher. Steve's a teacher. But it means the ultimate place for Larry is nothing becomes rhema to Larry until it's rhema to Larry. Hope everybody hears that. Because Steve can share out of something that he's just exploding with. It's become life and light to him, and it's rhema. And he's sharing it, but until it becomes rhema to you, it's not the same to you. Even though you can hear the words and say, oh, that's neat. It's when you begin to experience that truth, that truth, your own experience. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening in this walk in this, this particular church. And so in order to be a Berean, you have to search the scriptures to find out if what Steve's saying, Larry's saying, whoever, any place in the world, whatever they're saying is what they're saying true. And the fundamental is, where does it say that? I would put this as a caution. Whenever somebody 
is teaching you and trying to convince you that scripture says something and they can't tell you where the verse is that says it, an alarm ought to go off inside you to say, there's a huge probability here that I'm going to get into somebody's interpretation of what scripture says, as opposed to what scripture says. Because I will make you a promise as long as I'm alive. I will always be able to tell you the verse that I'm basing my understanding on. It doesn't mean I can't be wrong, but it does mean I'll be able to tell you the verse that I'm wrong about. And that puts it right in your lap to go. All right. Does that make some sense? I need to hear. Can I hear amens from here? <laughs> okay. Okay, I didn't, I don't know. I don't know if that was oh no or that was amen, but I'm gonna play like it was amen. All right, so let's let's talk about the, the book of Hebrews. Uh, let me ask this question. Do you find it interesting that the book of Hebrews in the Greek scriptures is the only book in the Greek scriptures that we don't know who the author was? Because a lot of people think it was Paul. I happen to be one of those who suspect highly that it was Paul, but I can't say emphatically that it was Paul. Why? Because if Steve says, where does it say that? I can't tell him. I can tell him why I think it might be him, but I can't tell him where it is him because it doesn't say. I think the reason for it, we can maybe find out tonight, is because the emphasis in the book of Hebrews like no place else in scripture and compacted as much as God mentioned as much and God's the one who's speaking. So the whole, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is God speaking. Now the question I want to put before you and before me is who is the book of Hebrews written to? Now we can really, really miss if we say, well, it was written to Hebrew Christians that were in danger of floating away from Jesus, instead of is written to believers for all time until the end that could be danger of floating away. Why would the Holy Spirit preserve anything that's not for me? I, I heard Steve um, a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about uh, reading in the letters to the churches. And he made a wonderful statement, and I just loved it. He said, when I read this, I read it like it's written to me. I read it to let's see what the Holy Spirit is saying to me or dealing with me or teaching me. It's about, it's a living word. It's to all of us. That's the way we need to address Scripture, that I'm the person that's reading it. It's addressed to me. I don't mean, Philip, go get you a fish. I don't mean that. I mean the revelation about Jesus and that whole perspective. So, so let's go. I've got a couple of places that I want to put before you, and uh, I think that uh, that we're supposed to stop and have some questions. So I'm going to have to really scoot uh, as quick as I can, but I hope to give you some something that that can be really fresh. So let's let's begin. God spoke to the fathers many portions, many ways, but He's spoken in these last, and that's exotos, and it means the absolute last days. It, it goes all the way to the end. So that's a verse that, in its very essence, is telling us this book is to the end. In fact, you'll see we're not going to be able to quote all of them, but there's several places that we're told in there to hold fast to our confession when firm unto the end. Firm unto the end, firm unto the end. And so this is about the end. Now I'm getting up there. I may not be around here much longer. My end may come sooner, but there's going to be some people that the end comes at the end that are going to be around and it's going to take them all the way through. So I hope to address some of that. But here's what it says He's spoken in a son. And the word in there means inside a son, and to translate it by a son misses it because that gets it outside of him and something he's doing rather than something the father is doing exclusively, exclusively inside the son, who he made heir of all things. Now, God 
the Son can't be heir of anything because God the Son is the one through whom the Father created all things. And that's what the next verse says. He made him to be heir of all things through whom also God the Father made the ages. And it's ages. It's not worlds doesn't cover it. It's, it's made everything for all time. Everything that's going to be time and space, God did it the Son. And then it says this exact same son, the son of man. The son of man is the one who inherits all things. This exact same son is now the radiance of his glory. And the light of the glory of God is shining in his face. When he turns, there's no shadow or variable. There's no shadow because there's no part of his being that blocks the light from the inside. He's radiant. He's a radiance of his glory. And... He is the physical manifestation that is housing this invisible presence of the totality of God. When he made him to sit down, he said, thy throne, O God, and he restored him to the glory that he had before the foundation of the world and all the fullness of God, the fullness of God. How much of it? All of it now dwells where? Inside a man with flesh and bone. It's all there. Now, that's a huge fractal. That's the fractal of the book of Hebrews, right there. That's the totality to everything to be said. There's nothing more to be said. There's more that can be revealed that's inside that fractal, but that's the whole. And then the next verse says this, and I, I love it. He brings all things by the power of his rhema. And your translation is going to say, he upholds. That word is used correctly in Corinthians, uh, in Colossians, where he says he, he sustains all things. But Pharaoh is the word there. It never means uphold. It means brings. So it means when you lay your head on your pillow tonight, before you go to sleep, it's the Father's desire to bring everything that is inside this man, Jesus, bring it to you as his rhema word. To you. It's just wonderful. So now that's it. We're going to say, okay, he wants to reveal to us everything that's inside this fractal. That's the whole, the seed of the new creation, everything, the head, it's all here. He's going to bring it. Now, it makes this incredible statement. And I'm, I'm going to try to hurry. Lord, help me. <sighs> when he had propitiated sin, and that's a noun, okay? It means that Jesus himself propitiated sin, and it's a noun. It doesn't mean an action that he did. It means he was this, the sacrifice lamb that the propitiation came from. That's who he was. Wow. He sat down by the right of the majesty on high, listen carefully, having inherited a much greater name than any of the angels. I want to submit to you that the whole revelation that's ahead for us in the book of Hebrews is... He inherited a much greater name than any of the angels. What is the name that he inherited? I'm submitting to you that that's a, I like that light being on so I can see everybody. That that helps me know that there are people out there. Somebody can wave, but, but you know, they don't understand. So thank you. There you go. Good. That thanks. Uh, I was in, <laughs> quick story. I was in Nigeria and they, I was from the hills of Kentucky, and I knew they'd probably have trouble understanding me. And I taught in there for three weeks. And I've given them instructions, and I said, if you don't understand what I'm saying, would you please just wave your, wave your hand, and I'll do it over. The next to the last time I taught, I said, you guys, you're just really not the kind of husbands that you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be serving this wife. You're supposed to be serving her like Christ served the church. You wouldn't believe the hands that went up. 
And the men were waving at me from all over the congregation. I said, you guys are so hypocritical. You know exactly, you heard exactly what I said. But anyway, that's interesting. So the hand waving sometimes helps. All right, so, so, so let's go. He's inherited a much greater name than any of the angels. For which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father? Now, we've already been told at the very beginning that this son is the heir of all things. Well, if he's the heir of all things, then he has to be the son who inherits the name that's much greater than the angels. Does everybody get that? This is good, too. I like this. The, he has to be the one who inherits the name that's much greater than angels if he's the heir of everything. Does that make sense? That's just simple to me, okay? So now we're going to a really interesting place, and I'm skipping ahead, and I'll, I'll come back. But the question that ought to be in all of our thought processes is if he's inherited a much greater name than any of the angels, superior in every way, what's the name? Am I going too fast? Or in that pretty clear, there's a, there's a name that's more important. It's a greater name than any of the angels. Wouldn't it be important to know what the name is? Okay, now I'll, I'll show you how fresh this is. I was in a Bible study earlier this day, and there's a woman in there, and she keeps she, she's asked me two times, I don't understand what, why it's such a big deal that you want us to understand who Melchizedek is. And I said, don't you think you'd like to know the name of your Savior? She said, I do. I said, yeah, you do at the childlike level. You know as a child. But let's find out what God says about children in the book of Hebrews. Okay, now we're going to go to chapter 5 right quick. In fact, this is the place when Steve asked me, where does it say that? I immediately said, well, several places, but let's go to Hebrews 5. And Steve, being a good old Bible scholar, coded with me perfectly the verse he had just asked me about. Yeah. And, and he had a little nervous laugh, and I said, well, Steve, you're kind of like me. You can quote verses. You don't know what they mean. So he can quote it perfectly, but when I said that the high priest is the Savior, he says, where does it say that? And he quoted it perfectly. Now, and the last time I was out there, I said, that's Steve and that's me, but we're really talking about you. How many verses can you quote that you don't experience the reality and what really is being said? So now we're going to go into Hebrews 5 because the Holy Spirit does this wonderful thing in Hebrews 5 as he reverses the order of what he said in 1. What he said in 1 is he's inherited a much greater name than any of the angels, and for which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, to make it clear that the son's the one that's going to inherit the name. But when we get into Hebrews 5, and I love being able to talk to so much of you because I know that this is this is place that water can fall and things can grow because you've got so many seeds that are sown into you. The, the high priest is no longer a strange thing to this group of people. And that's just off the chart because I can tell you for sure that most places that you would drop me out into church and I started talking to this, they would say to me, but what about the cross? It's amazing how many places, Steve, that you can go and want to talk about Jesus alive, and they want to say, but what about the cross? It's just absolutely astonishing, because the Savior is not on a cross, <laughs> okay? But here we go. Hebrews 5 says to us, that every high priest that's taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God, and he's able to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Does that cover? Every time I read this, it hits me fresh. I got ignorant and misguided places today, okay? Today. One day of, of, of mistakes is enough, right? Okay. But ignorant and misguided, that's what he can do. And the sacrifices that he offers for the people has to offer for himself 
and I love it, we're coming to it. No one takes the honor to himself to be called high priest. The honor. But receives it. Receives what? The honor. <laughs> when he's called by God, as Aaron was. So the Messiah did not glorify himself so as to become high priest. Why? He couldn't. God's the one that honors, and God's the one that glorifies, right? And so he says to him, but the one who said to him, you are my son, today I become your father, also says, you're a royal priest forever upon my declaration, my righteous king, Melchizedek. There it is. He just declared to us that the Messiah is the one who inherits the name much greater than the angels, and that name is Melchizedek, my righteous king. Now watch what happens next. The Holy Spirit immediately says, in the days of his flesh, whose flesh? The son who inherited the name Melchizedek, in the name of, days of his flesh. With loud crying and tears, he called out to him who's able to save him, as Steve taught so well, out of the sphere of death. He didn't save him from death. He saved him from experiencing death like nobody yet has experienced death. That's what he saved him from. And having been made perfect through the things he suffered, he became, listen carefully, the source of eternal salvation being designated by God, Melchizedek, my righteous king. Does anybody hear that? Now, he just declared for the second time with an emphasis, is this one who has been raised from the dead, has been birthed as a son from the abyss, raised from the dead, exalted to God's right hand, declared high priest Melchizedek. And then he does an amazing thing. He says, concerning him, there is polus, there is so much extensively more that I want to tell you about Melchizedek, but I can't because it's hard to understand because you are dull of hearing. You're lazy. You're slothful. You won't pursue. Amazing. The he is not Jesus all the way back over before. The antecedent of he is the last person that's been named, which is Melchizedek. Is that okay with the English teachers that are in the room? Okay. The antecedent is the last time a subject has been mentioned. He. I can't tell you more about him. And then this statement comes. By now, you ought to be teachers. I hope everybody's hearing this. By now, you ought to be teachers. But you need somebody to teach you the elementary things about the Christ again. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For one who partakes of milk, listen carefully, is inexperienced in the word of righteousness. That word, doesn't un, that word understand doesn't mean intellectual understanding. It means you don't experience righteousness. Now, now that we know, we can say it another way. You don't experience Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. You don't experience it. You don't even know about him. You ought to be teaching about him, but you don't even know about him. So, yes, I can say to this woman, yes, you know that Jesus of Nazareth is called Savior, but you don't know how he became Savior, and you don't know how the Father declared him Savior, and you don't know the role he's in as Savior. You don't know that. So can you imagine, as important as this announcement is, he's just told us that this priest that Jesus 
in, in chapter 2, we're told that Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. And again, I beg everybody to know we're watching a movie. And if that means we're watching a movie, then this is what it really means. Show me the scenes. Show me the imagery that goes with the word. Well, you can say glory and honor all day long and not have an image that goes with it whatsoever if you ignore the fact that the book of Hebrews lets us clearly know who gets the honor <laughs> and who gets the glory. And in both cases, it's the priest king. So, you, can, I mean, don't use those words as a baby. Use those words as people who are growing. And know that when you say you're worthy of the honor and the glory that you know the Father's honored him by calling him my righteous king. And he's glorified him by what? Letting the light of the glory of God begin to shine <laughs> in his face and all of his brilliance. All that coming from this king. So he stops. What an incredible thing. He's made the announcement that this is about Melchizedek. He's the, that's the name he's inherited. And then he stops and says, I, I, I can't tell you all I want to tell you about Melchizedek. So he warns, rebukes, because being babies. And then in six, he starts with this phrase. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about the Messiah. Well, I'm glad that I can now say with this household of believers, uh, they've left. Jubilee Church has left. They've not left the truth about Jesus, but they've left the elementary things about Jesus and they're moving on. How critical is that? That is so emphatically different. And then there's this huge warning that comes to say to us, if you don't leave and come to a realization of who Melchizedek is, you're in great danger of drifting away. You're in danger of being bad ground that doesn't ever end up producing anything. That's your danger. But then he says, but I want to encourage you with something. And it's a wonderful encouragement. I want to go back to talking to you about my kids. You're my kids. So I've got much better thoughts about you, though these warnings have come. I want to tell you about this, what I've got in mind for you. I want you to realize the full assurance of hope. When to when? How long? Until the end. Okay until the end, because you're probably going to need this full assurance of hope at the end. It may get real messy at the end, and you might really need this, okay? So there's the fundamental. Now, it's amazing what he does here, because he said, since the Lord could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. What? And he said to Abraham, blessing, I will bless you, multiplying, I'll multiply you. And Abraham, having patiently waited, inherited the promises. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given is confirmation's end of all conflict. We're not going to keep debating what the price is going to be. It's, it's over if there's an oath that's given. Okay. In the same way, God, desiring to show to his kids the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interceded with an oath. He added an oath to his promise. And what was the purpose of that? So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
would you just kind of under your breath say it's impossible for God to lie? It is impossible for God to lie. Why does he put this exactly where he's put it? The Holy Spirit is writing this through a man, and it's in the exact sequence being presented at the exact time that God wants it to be presented. Okay? He interceded with an oath. In order that by two unchangeables in which it's impossible for God to lie, all of us might have strong encouragement. Those of us, listen carefully, don't duck this verse because you don't like it who have fled for refuge, laying hold of the hope set before us. Now, there is no reason in the world to flee for refuge unless there's something that is an absolute threat to your faith and your walking in obedience to the Lord and facing whatever the tests and trials are. You flee for refuge because there's something to flee from. But where do you flee? You flee inside the veil where Jesus is entered and it says it again having become a high priest Melchizedek now what we've been told now is that God is saying I, will, I rebuke you from being babies I told you to leave I warned you what will happen if you don't leave and now I'm telling you I've got an oath here and if you really understand what this oath is, then you can enter in within the veil and you can escape whatever out there threatens. So now, God says, so now let's talk about Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham when Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And his name by translation is, and you'll find your translation say, king of righteousness. That's not what Melchi is. Melchi is my king. And, and, and Steve's fed on this in front of you a lot because that's exactly what's said in Psalms 2. The Lord says, I'm going to terrify you that don't want anything to do with me. I'm going to terrify you with these words. I have poured myself into my king. Melchi, first half of the name Melchizedek. <laughs> I poured myself into my king on Zion, the mountain of my holiness. So there it is. It all fits. And so with that declaration, he says this. Melchizedek didn't have a father. Melchizedek didn't have a mother. Melchizedek didn't have a genealogy. Uh, he doesn't sound very mortal, does he? He didn't have beginning of days, and he didn't have an end of life. That sounds like an eternal being. If you don't have beginning of days, then you have to be eternal, yes or no. If you have a beginning, you're not eternal. <laughs> okay. All right. He didn't have beginning days. He didn't have end of life. He's made like a son of God. And he's a priest right present active tense. He's a priest right now. There's no place in scripture that there's that culmination of seven expressions about who this person is. And yet... Christian Bible teachers, I'm not talking about liberal theologians that don't believe the scripture. Christian teachers, lovers of God, will say all the time that he really did have a father, and that he really did have a mother, and he had a genealogy, and he had beginning of days, and he had an end of life. And he's buried someplace around Jerusalem, waiting for his namesake to resurrect him from the dead. And I say to them, so God's a liar. His whole emphasis 
before he gets over here to tell us the things we weren't ready to hear. He says, you ought to be ready to hear now because I've reproved you from being babies. I have encouraged you to leave and come on in here. I have given you an oath that's promising you everything that I'm going to say about Melchizedek is true so that you will receive it and believe it and start to enjoy the fellowship of your savior, Melchizedek. Now, um, let me come to this place and, and uh, uh, give you a, a, a summation that I've, I'm so blessed by. I mean, really blessed by. The greatest case of righteousness in the universe is that this righteous God is going to deal with unrighteousness that started when somebody rebelled. All was perfect until unrighteousness was found in creation. So the big picture that we're, we, we, I believe this, this congregation of people that you're part of are being called into being people who understand the big picture. Because if we don't understand the big picture, then how do we know where the puzzle parts go, the different scriptures? Where do we fit them? Do we fit them in where we want them to fit? Or we just say, no, this scripture is true. Uh, there's, there's a number of scriptures that I read that I say to the Father, they're true, but I don't understand them. I learned a long time ago to not say, well, I don't understand it, so I'm going to make up my own definition of what it says. Or I'll get somebody's commentary and I'll accept what they say that it says. They're smart. It doesn't say that to me, but that's what they say it says. So I'm going to say, yeah, that's what I believe. I don't do that anymore. If I don't get revelation on it, then guess what? It's true, though I don't understand it. And I won't say that scripture is not true. Why? Because I know that it is true, whether it fits what I understand or not. Has to be that way, or we put ourselves in the place of judging God and judging what he says and said, God, will let you know whether you were right or wrong about this when we understand it. That's not the way children deal with the Holy Father. So let's talk about a case, a court case. In order for the greatest court case, we're going to have the greatest case that has been in human history and all of creation. What do we have to have in order to have a case? It's going to get settled, and it's going to be settled in righteousness. And the first thing we have to have is a righteous judge. Yes? Can everybody agree to that? I mean, can I see hands? Can everybody agree that we got to have a righteous judge? Oh, okay, good. The second thing we have to have is we have to have witnesses to the whole the entirety of the case that can bear witness to what the essential elements of the case are. Yes? Does everybody get that? We have to have eyewitnesses. Yes? Now, here's a biggie. What do the witnesses have to do before we will listen to their testimony? Uh... Will you swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Now, in this liberal world, they may not be saying that anymore. Just will you tell the truth? But for years and years and years, it was, I'm saying this before God. I'm going to tell the truth. That's an oath. So guess what? In this incredible case, the 12th chapter of Hebrews talks about who we really are, that we're already seated in the heavenly places. We are, we just don't go there enough to realize that's where we are. That's what we're being called into. Spend enough time in there so you know that you are there. Because if you don't spend any time in there, you'll never come to recognize, I'm already here. But that's the great thick declaration of the 12th chapter as it closes, say, we're already here. You didn't come to that mountain. You've come to this one. But, yeah, you, you've come to the right place. 
God the judge. So we know who the righteous judge is. Who's the righteous judge? God. John 5, 1 John 5 says this. You receive the witness of men. The witness of God is greater. And the witness of God is this, that he's born witness concerning his son. And whoever believes in the son has the witness in himself. And he who does not believe in the son has made God a liar because he's not accepted the witness God is born concerning his son. So we've got this great case. We've got a witness. We've got a righteous judge. And we got an eyewitness to the whole thing. Now, what else do you think that this witness, this witness should do? Well, he just did it. And he does it in chapter seven when he swears by an oath to Jesus of Nazareth, the man, before he sits down, having inherited a much greater name. That's when he says that he inherits the name before he sits down. Never needs to be repeated. He inherited a much greater name than any of the angels. And God says to him, I'm swearing to you and will not change. You'll roar priest forever upon my declaring you my righteous king. So now we know all the elements of the ultimate court case of all of history, that a righteous judge that's bearing righteous testimony concerning his son, and he swears with an oath to the son he's going to talk about that he can be high priest forever. Wow. That's a big deal. That's a big big deal and as you continue to feed then you're going to be loving what's there i want to i'm going to take uh, three minutes here and then steve if we got need to take a question or two we will i want to say this and i've already i told steve i've asked people that i've talked to before uh i've been living in and from the book of hebrews for 44 years and i've missed one of the most vital parts of the whole thing and what that vital part is, why is it that the Holy Spirit in chapter 3, immediately after declaring that we're supposed to focus on Jesus as apostle and high priest, and we're supposed to hold fast to our confidence in his work as an apostle, and the boast of our hope firm unto the end, which is what the high priest is going to do, that the next thing he says is, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, and the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, saw my works for 40 years, always went astray in their hearts, and I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. So let me just tell you, you got to be really careful that there should not be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. But we are what? Partakers of Christ, if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance, Firm, how long? How long does this go? Until the end. How long? Until the end. Well, there's an amazing thing that happens. You might can read it tomorrow. But when you get in the 12th chapter, there's an amazing thing that happens in chapter 12 that I've missed all these years. That expression in 12 is that we've got this great cloud of witnesses and the cloud that's most important there is the ones that died without receiving the promises. In fact, it says all of these did. Nobody got the promise because the promises are all in Jesus until it's perfected in Jesus as, as the one the Father swears everything's going to with an oath, then nothing's available to everybody. All the inheritances to who? Him. All the promises of God are where? In him. Okay? So that's the fullness of what the Father's done inside this son. 
But after saying that to us, then it says that we've got to lay aside the weights that pull us down and sin which so easily entangles us. And sin in the book of Hebrews, and sometimes we'll come back and spend more time on this, maybe, Steve, but sin in the book of Hebrews is not sins that we might commit along the way. It's the big picture. It's the sin of unbelief that God cannot fulfill his promise by taking us into his inheritance. It's the same promise, and that's exactly what's said. Exactly. In four, it says, we've had good news preached to us just like as they did also, but the word they heard didn't benefit them because it was not united with the faith in those who heard. And then we're warned. David, after so many years, what's the word to David? Today, if you hear his voice, same thing. What is his, today? It's the exact same thing. Today, if we hear his voice, what's his voice saying to us? That there is a great salvation that is coming to us all, and this planet is going to be taken back by the Father, and Jesus is going to rule over it, just as it says in chapter 1, when he again brings his firstborn into the inhabited earth, let all the angels worship him. And then when it gets over in 2, it says it's not to angels considering this inhabited earth to come concerning we're speaking, but what's man? Oh, the one who gave it to in the first place. And the son of man, well, he's the one I had to go say because the first one messed up, but it's still to man. I've given it to man. And Steve has quoted so well Ephesians 3 that says there's an administration suitable to the fullness of the time. That is the summing up of every single thing in heaven and on earth inside Jesus. And don't think that it's going to heaven when you die gets it done. Jesus really meant it, pray, Father, may thy will actively come that your will might be passively done in the earth. Get active, Father, bring it about, so that'll be done. And so the warning that we get into in 12 after this incredible thing, it says, keep our eye on Jesus, the author of faith, and the finish your faith for the joy set before him endured the cross. And then it says this, look at all that Jesus has endured of against sinners and suffering. And we've not yet shed blood to our resistance against sin, but woe to me how much I've missed the but. Understand that every single hardship that comes is the father disciplining us as his children to be able to share into his inheritance. Whoa. Now the implications of that are huge, but uh, I hope that's, uh, Steve, that's a lot to try to get covered in a short period of time. So I don't know if you got comments or questions, I'll be glad to address whatever I can. Yeah, thanks, Larry. I was absolutely perfect. Do you enjoy it? I got some, uh, I got room for one or two questions. And if uh, you have, if you raise your hand, we're gonna do it short and I'm gonna bless you and send you out. You know, when Larry said the first time to me that Jesus on the cross was not the savior. And I said, where'd you say that? And then he went to Hebrews five and it says very clearly that he having been perfected, which is resurrection, Amen. Having been called out of the abyss as a son, having then been given the high priestly ministry, being called the royal king, that he became, or you know, the high, you know, the king of righteousness became a royal priest. That then he became the author or the cause of eternal salvation. So, just so you appreciate this, Larry. Yes, we talked about that just briefly again this morning on the phone, and I went to go spend some time with the Lord, and so I. I had, to, I had to start, you know, a lot of times when you've said something so many times in a certain way, you, you get an image of it because of the repetition, even though it's not really the purpose. And then later, if you'll open yourself to, to meditating the scripture and allowing the scripture to speak, you discover that it's um, saying something more than you were thinking when you heard it before through repetition, traditions and stuff. And what I heard as I was walking 
is yes, Jesus on the cross was not the savior. He was the sacrifice. That's it. Do you understand? Before there could be a, before there could be a savior, there had to be a sacrifice. He was he did not do anything on the cross except submit to the Father, to be to be put to to death for our sin. So in the uh, and without that, there would be none of the, nothing else would follow. There would be no there would be no uh, atonement. There would be no resurrection. There would be no eternal life. There would be all the things. But again, sequence matters because if we always return to some place before you know it, you think Jesus is on the cross dealing with sin. Well, he is, and that he's become sin. Amen. He really isn't God. He's not in control of it at all. He's submitted to the Father. Exactly. So, Larry, I think we're. I think you've uh, pushed us, but the more we listen, the more opportunity we will have to get it soon. Would you pray a, a blessing for revelation to flow? Sure. And we'll close. Lord, we, you know, the Holy Spirit, Jesus made a clear declaration that when he got in the throne room that he was going to send you and that you weren't going to speak on your own initiative. You're going to speak whatever he gives you to speak. And that 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 you were going to take what Jesus has re received and reveal it to us. And we are we're, we recognize that we're babies in so many ways. But we want to leave that. We want to keep that childlike place even as we grow, that we never leave that childlike place of dependency uh, because it'll produce arrogance. Knowledge produces arrogance. Personal experience with Jesus produces humility. And the Lord, you really meant it when you said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I'm meek and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. What? What an expression of dependency. So get in the yoke over here with me and learn from me meekness and humility, dependency. And out of that comes the availability for the Father to find you available when something needs to be done, that you're available because you're in dependency. And that's how we want to live. I thank you for Steve and for this family. I thank you for what you're doing in them and their, uh, their openness, their desire. Uh, and it's, it's been a gift and a blessing to me. And I ask you just to, just to continue the pathway of finishing what you've begun in this people. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory. Amen. Amen. Larry, thank you very much for um, staying with us and journeying with us. Truth, thank you, everybody in the sanctuary, everyone online, and everybody in the house, since we are aware of the media team. Can we thank God for our media team? We had to put three platforms, YouTube, uh, Zoom, and uh, Sling Studio to get this to happen. But we appreciate you, Larry. God bless you. Get some rest. Okay. And we'll go off and be together again soon. Okay, bye-bye.